and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and this is a podcast about Alexandra Kollontai and 47 selections of her writing, which has now expanded to include articles and essays and other ephemera that was written about Alexandra Kollontai, including contemporaneous news pieces, of which I'm going to read one today. But before I launch into, I think, a kind of interesting and somewhat timely piece, given the state of the world and current events right now, I'm recording this on December 4th, 2022. And I've been following very closely the situation of the protests in Iran and the outrage that followed the death of a young woman who refused to wear her headscarf. And there's some really interesting kind of historical resonances, I think, with the article that I'm going to read today, which is actually from January 21st, 1923. So almost 100 years ago. But before I dive into the article, I wanted to make a quick announcement that the audiobook of my latest book, Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women, is finally available now on Audible or Spotify or audiobooks.com or wherever it is that you get your audiobooks. And I actually haven't listened to it completely all the way through yet, but I am really excited and grateful that the voice actor Esther Wayne, who was the narrator for Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, kindly agreed to also be the narrator for Red Valkyries. So if you're interested in hearing Red Valkyries, please check out the audiobook. I'll actually leave a link to the Audible and the Spotify in the show notes, but of course, it's pretty widely available. With that announcement out of the way, today I'm going to read a very interesting piece that I excavated from the New York Times archive. It's called Russian Women Are Still Charming, and it was published, as I said, on January 21st, 1923. And it is the report of a Seattle labor leader who had apparently gone and visited the Soviet Union in the early 20s. Now, this is a product of its time. So the language here is pretty sexist and I would argue pretty Orientalist as well. But I find it really fascinating that Kolontai is directly mentioned and that either this labor leader decided to send the New York Times the part of his travel dispatch that dealt with women, or the New York Times found it the most interesting part of his dispatches and published it. Uh, Because otherwise, it seems fairly out of context. So there's just a brief introduction. And then the vast majority of this article is just quotes from this labor leader. So Anyway, I think that it's fascinating for all sorts of reasons, partially having to do with these ongoing protests in Iran and the fact that over a hundred years ago, the new Soviet Socialist Republic, and particularly Alexandra Kollontai and the Genotdel, the women who were working with her in the Communist Party, the women's section of the Communist Party, also tried to deveil or unveil or, or or grapple with the status of women in the Caucasus and Central Asia. These are the parts of 
the former Russian Empire and now the new Soviet Republic that were Muslim. Now, there's been a lot of controversy around Colin Tai's work in this part of the world. And for those of you who are interested in reading more about this, I highly recommend a book from 1974 by Gregory Massell called The Surrogate Proletariat. And I have a lot of thoughts about the role that the Genotel played in this part of history and the sort of desire to emancipate these Muslim women as part of a kind of their project for realizing women's emancipation more broadly. But I'll save those maybe for a subsequent podcast if I run out of time for this one, because I think this is a really interesting piece and it deserves a full read. So here we go. Russian women are still charming. The equality of the sexes supposed to obtain in Russia under the Bolshevik regime by no means diminished the charm of the eternal feminine, according to impressions registered by Hulit M. Wells, a Seattle labor leader, during a sojourn of several months in the Soviet Republic. In writing about his experiences, Mr. Wells disclaims any attempt at a profound study of Russian feminism as such a task would have required more time and special knowledge than he had at his disposal. Some of his observations follow. Russian girls are pleasing. Yes, that much I will say. I never got over a sort of shocked patriotic surprise to find so much female beauty outside the Anglo-Saxon race. One is bewildered by the variety of types the slow, impassive, sturdy women of the North who show their Finnish origin, the statuesque, voluptuous types from Latvia and Estonia, the jolly, red-cheeked, German-looking girls from the Ukraine, and the dark-haired beauties from the Volga, while here and there were the lazy grace, milky skin, and soulful eyes by which our stage and literature have typified for us the upper-class ladies of an age that, in Russia, already seems remote. The national dress of the Russian men is quite distinctive, but I was surprised to find how little difference there seemed to be between the appearance of the much better dressed of the Russian women and the womenfolk to whom I have always been accustomed. In some European countries, short skirts have always been a feature of the national dress, I was told that this had not been the case in Russia, but now I found that this fashion was the same there as over most of the world, and certainly most of the Russian women had little reason for shunning the new style. Many without stockings. Also, there are few countries where the stockingless style could get by with such a pleasing effect. The habit of discarding stockings during the summer months seems to have originated from three sources. There were, first, the poorer peasant women, with whom it was an old custom. Second, those for whom war and blockade made it a simple economy. Third, those who took it up from choice as an agreeable fashion. The latter class of women wore pretty clothes and neat shoes, with or without short socks. Probably two-thirds of the women, however, did not take up the habit They wore neat white stockings, but few of silk. 
An encounter with examples of advanced femininity from Russia's outlying eastern and southern provinces, attending the World Congress of Communist Women, was held in Moscow, was described by Mr. Wells as follows. In the center of the presidium sat Kalantai, with Lilina of Russia at her left and Clara Setkin of Germany at her right. Speeches were being made in four languages. Now comes a woman from Turkestan. She is a communist worker, and she is talking about the women of the East. But in speech, dress, and manner, she is not different from the Russia that is already familiar. I wonder what these women of the East are like. Suddenly, the speaker is interrupted. A wave of excitement sweeps over the delegates. They turn in my direction. Now they're looking eagerly at the doorway beside which I am sitting. They break into wild applause. Here they come, the women of the East. It was the strangest procession that I had ever seen. Mostly Mohammedan women of Mongol, Tatar, and Turkish tribes. Cloistered women upon many of whose faces strange men had never been accustomed to look. If it was a strange experience for me, what a revelation this astounding journey must have been to them. What an uprooting of age-old ideas. Even yet, many of them shrank from the immodesty of revealing their faces to the public gaze. They wore long skirts and draperies of dark cloth. Some wore Turkish trousers and shoes. Others wore sandals of bark or were barefoot. Evidently, they thought they were coming into a meeting of women only, for several who had their veils thrown back hastily lowered them when they discovered men in the audience. Some veils lifted. One of the more emancipated of the group marched ahead of her sisters, with head boldly bared, and a few others followed her example. Others had a shawl or mantle over their heads, which they drew together over the face, leaving only a narrow slit through which to look. The majority, however, wore a peculiar high headdress suggesting a coffin. It was made of black cloth fitted over a sort of hoop above the head, falling below the waist. An aperture in the front was filled with black net, behind which the face was invisible. As I was the first person whom they encountered on entering, I supposed I was taken for a committee of welcome. The leader impulsively shook hands with me, and, having set the fashion, it was followed by the others. One with open veil suddenly recoiled when she discovered herself face to face with a man. I got a glimpse of her startled black eyes before she drew the curtain that shut me out. So that is how I came to welcome the women of the mysterious East to the international sisterhood. My part was quite unofficial, of course. Madame Kolontai did the honors, responded to by a veiled woman of Samarkand. Then came the sound of a strange language uttered in a voice that sounded somehow like the tinkling of bells. Perhaps not. Perhaps that was my fancy. But the owner of the voice was enough to wonder at. She stood there, slim and young and dainty, a little frightened by her unaccustomed role. You would have sworn she was American. Surely those pretty features and that pink and white skin must spring from old American stock. But no, 
She comes from the far land of Azerbaijan, from a little mountain tribe that must have been pocketed in some Caucasian valley when our family started on its long journey to the West. So that's the end of the piece. And as I'm sure you can tell, it's just rife with all sorts of strange bits of sexism and racism and Orientalism. This is, after all, 1923 in the United States, and this is a presumably white labor leader who has been sent to the Soviet Union to join some kind of Congress and who finds himself at the World Conference of Women and is sort of trying to create an impression for American readers for whom everything about the Soviet Union at this particular period of time must have been very mysterious. So I think this is so interesting because he really does show that among the quote-unquote mysterious women from the East, there are those who are boldly, bravely pulling their headscarves back and reaching out to shake his hand to sort of prove their emancipation. And then there are others who are clearly unsettled by the whole endeavor. And when they see a man, they immediately close their their headscarves. They immediately recoil from him. And Kolontai is there to try to incorporate these women into the kind of vision of Soviet emancipated womanhood that she's trying to promote as part of the basics of a new worker state, which guarantees women equality with men. And the Muslim population in the South clearly creates a dilemma for Kolontai and the other women working with her in the Genotta. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about exactly what was going on in the Soviet Union in the 20s. And having read Gregory Messel's book very carefully when I was doing the research for Second World, Second Sex, It's very clear that women in Central Asia at this particular period of time in the Caucasus really were treated as chattel. And Kolontai and her colleagues really faced a complicated dilemma. On the one hand, there was the desire to emancipate these women through the Soviet process, through education, by making them literate, by giving them access to education and professional training by allowing them to get jobs outside of the home, by encouraging them to take off their veils. On the other hand, women in this part of the world were absolutely not ready for these changes and faced an incredible amount of resistance from their male family members and the male members of their societies. So for the most part, as Marcel points out, this was a very unwelcome intervention, partially because even the women who truly tried to integrate into this new Soviet norm of emancipated womanhood were completely cut off from their natal societies. And it was very, very difficult for them to integrate into the you know, mainstream Russian society. They basically had to leave home and and try to make lives for themselves outside of their natal communities because of the way that this emancipation was sort of forced upon them. And, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship about this. And, you know, the interesting counterfactual is whether Kolontai and her colleagues in the Jeannot Dell should have just left Soviet 
women in Central Asia and in the Caucasus alone, given that there was this large Muslim minority and that these women had very few rights in their societies, was the right decision, sort of the less imperialistic decision, to allow these women to come to their own sort of emancipation in their own time. Certainly, Nadezhda Krupskaya, who would later address a congress of these Eastern women, felt that the Genotdal had been too heavy-handed and that the Soviet central government really needed to be more responsive to local conditions and to allow women to gradually grasp for their emancipation without the kind of heavy-handedness that was imposed on these women in Central Asia in the 20s. Again, I really encourage those of you who are interested in this to go to read Gregory Massel's book, The Surrogate Proletariat. But I really wanted to read this piece because I've been thinking a lot about the protest in Iran and these young women and youth who are resisting the veil, the headscarf. They are frustrated by the mandatory imposition of this Islamic morality on them, so much so that there are morality police who can arrest you and in the case of this young woman, actually kill you for refusing to wear the headscarf. So Azerbaijan, as you may or may not know, borders Iran. And so this is sort of precisely the part of the world that Kalantai and the Genotel in the 1920s were targeting. And it's just fascinating to me that although I think in retrospect, the Soviet Women's Committee was probably a bit too heavy-handed in this part of the world. And as Marcel argues, the emancipation of women in Central Asia really stood in for a kind of proletarian revolution because there was no proletariat to speak of in Central Asia at this time. That's why the book is called The Surrogate Proletariat. That there was this Orientalist impulse to you know, try to force emancipation among these women in the East, many of whom were not ready for it and who may not have wanted it at the time. So here we are a hundred years later, and obviously Iran is not the Soviet Union, but it's very close to the area within which the Soviets were working. And you have this sort of organic uprising against the headscarf, precisely the thing that Kalantai and the Genotdal were trying to get removed or to stop being mandatory back in the 20s. So it's a complicated issue, and I'm not saying that there are any easy answers. And of course, on the other hand, I think if Kalantai and her colleagues had not attended to the needs and desires for emancipation of the Central Asian women and Caucasian women who really did want to be emancipated. Obviously, this article clearly identifies at least one woman who very boldly walked into the Presidium with her headscarf thrown back and shook his hand. She was clearly ready for this sort of more emancipatory politics. Would it have been right for Colin Tai and the other members of the Genotel to say, no, no, sorry, we can't help you because you're a Muslim woman and you need to wait until all of the women in your society are ready? I don't know. I don't think that would have been uh, ideal for those women, but perhaps from the point of view of incrementalism, it might have made more sense for kind of the larger Soviet 
project of women's emancipation rather than doing it all at once, which is, you know, what the socialists were trying to do in the very early period of time. If the more incremental approach might have been taken, perhaps things would have changed in the long run more substantially than they actually did. So I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, I myself have some Azeri background, and I so I'm really fascinated about what's happening in this part of the world in historical perspective, but also really interested in the events going on in Iran today, particularly as they reflect the situation of women and women's rights. And the last thing I'll say is that You know, this is such an interesting article, again, because it really gives you a good window into what American readers wanted to hear about, which is whether or not Russian women are attractive or Soviet women, as the case may be, which is really kind of silly. I I can't imagine a similar article being published in The New York Times in 2023, but you never know. I just think that it tells you a lot about how absolutely radical, the idea of the equality of the sexes and women's emancipation must have been in the United States at this particular moment of time. That the first concern, and a concern that continues, right, all the way until the present era, is that whether or not emancipated women are still feminine, whether or not emancipated women are still attractive. These are the kinds of tropes that we still hear with the stereotypes of feminists as being like ugly and hairy and man haters or whatever. You know, some things never change. So that's it for this episode. Thank you as always so much for listening and keep up the good fight. Girls, we-